Christ and the plan for Him to become a man was set in motion before the creation of the world. It wasn't sort of an afterthought for God. And the fact that Christ would come into the world and be crucified was also something that was in God's mind before the creation of the world. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it says, All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So Jesus becoming man was in God's mind before God ever said, let there be light. Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting from the dead occurred in the far reaches of eternity past. And the reason I want to point that out to you here this morning is sometimes I think we feel that God is sort of making it up as he goes. Does it ever feel like that to you? I know I have occasionally felt that way. Uh, it's sort of like, okay, God, are you really in charge of this thing? Things seem out of control. What's happening? My life is not turning out exactly as I had planned. Things are happening to my family and to my friends that I had not anticipated. What's going on, Lord? And yet, here in Galatians chapter 4, we see, and hopefully today I will be able to begin to take you through the reality that God has it all under control. One of the aspects of God's nature is that He is omniscient. He, he knows everything. There's nothing that escapes His notice. And so in planning, God has every detail accounted for. So I'm going to read Galatians 4, verse 4. It says, but when the time, or excuse me, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. I'm going to read that again. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And this morning we're going to focus on the first phrase of verse 4, when the set time had fully come. Now pay attention to that, the set time. God had established a very specific point in history when Christ would come. Again, as I said, we're not on a runaway train. God is in control. God is in charge. He had this plan from before the foundation of the world. But if you go in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, God is pronouncing judgment on Adam and Eve and also on the serpent. And there is this uh, amazing verse, verse 15 in chapter 3, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That is between the serpent and the woman. And between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So this is the proto-evangelum, the very first evidence of the uh, good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. God says he's going to put enmity between 
the serpent and the woman and between their offspring. Of course, the offspring of Satan is anybody who follows after the way of Satan, the way of the world. In John chapter 8, the, the, the Jews were saying, our father is Abraham. And Jesus said, no, he's not. He said, you're of your father, the devil. So the offspring of, of Satan is all of those who follow after him. But the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, was Jesus. And here the promise is that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent, though the serpent would strike his heel. And of course, that's what, exactly what occurred on the cross. Satan won a supposed victory in putting Jesus to death on the cross, but ultimately, Jesus crushed his head. The works of Satan have been destroyed. The victory is his. And we are experiencing the fruits of that victory. So that began the story there in, in Genesis chapter 3, where uh, God promised that he would send forth the seed of the woman, his son, ultimately, at a particular time. Well, later, after Genesis chapter 3, we see that things don't begin to go so well. The earth is corrupt, men are uh, following after their own lusts, and God decides, you know what? This is not what I had intended. And so I'm going to destroy that which I have created. And of course, the flood of Noah, Genesis chapter 6. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a man who God knew he could work through. And so Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it was through Noah that God preserved the seed of the woman. Again, that promise that God would send forth a deliverer. So Noah and his family, eight souls in total, went into the ark. The flood came, destroyed the world. And afterwards, Noah and his family left the ark. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in Genesis chapter 9, we read of God's uh, direction to Noah and his sons. He said, go forth into the world. Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, begin to propagate and populate the world once again. And in Genesis chapter 11, God gives a genealogy. Not the genealogy of Japheth, not the genealogy of Ham, but very specifically the genealogy of Shem. Now, I know sometimes we go through the Old Testament and we read through some of these genealogies and we think, why did God throw this in here? What is the point? It's sort of boring, you know, two chapters worth of names. But it's very important. And the genealogy of Shem takes us down through a series of generations to a man named Abram. And Abram, of course, becomes Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, there is a very specific promise to Abraham. And I'm going to, it's, it's an important promise. So I'm going to find it here and read the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And here's the promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So there's the promise to Abram that the entire world will be blessed through him. And of course, the specific of that promise is that it is through his seed 
Not seeds. It's not his entire generations, but through his particular seed. We read about that in Galatians chapter 3, that through Abram's seed, God would bless the world. And of course, the seed is Christ. It would come through Abram, later Abraham, that Christ would come. In the genealogy in Matthew, there are 42 generations that are given. 14 generations from Abram to David. 14 generations from David to the uh, destruction of the temple. And then 14 generations from that point to the time of Christ. And it was through Mary there. And then in, in chapter 3 of Luke, we read of the genealogy through Joseph. So in both of those instances, both through Mary and through Joseph, the seed of the woman would come and also be the seed of a man named David. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is getting ready to build the Lord a great temple. David has built himself a house, and his house is glorious. And, the Lord, or, and David said, you know, it's not right that the Lord should dwell in a tent, and here I live in this beautiful house of cedar. So David intended to build a house for the Lord. David went to the prophet Nathan and said, Nathan, this is what I want to do. And Nathan said, go for it. Sounds good to me. That's a paraphrase. Um, but that night, God appeared to Nathan and said to Nathan, you know, I don't need David to build me a house. Instead, I'm going to build David a house. A house more glorious than the house David lives in right now. And of course, through that is the promise to David that it would come through his progeny that an everlasting kingdom would be established. It would be David's son who would build the house. And that, of course, is Christ once again. So we see this promise coming down. Before the creation of the world, Christ in the mind of God. After the fall, the seed of the woman being promised by God. Through Abram, the promise that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And now through David, the promise of an everlasting kingdom accomplished by his son. So the promise is narrowing further and further. For those of you who've studied, you know this, but in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies specifically related to the first coming of Jesus Christ. That's a lot. Jesus fulfilled each one of those promises precisely. In the, the whole of the Old Testament, there's 456 prophecies related to Christ. Most of the other ones relate to after his coming. But 300 prophecies relating to the specific coming of Jesus and his, his first advent. And Jesus fulfilled them all. How many of you ever read, have ever read Science Speaks by Peter Stoner or ever had it referred to you? Anyone in here? Oh, would you like this then? Peter Stoner was a mathematician. He was a professor at a college in uh, California. And he did a study of the statistical odds of anyone fulfilling eight of those 300 prophecies related to the first coming of Christ. And he calculated, and I have all the information if any of you are 
interested in the specifics of this, but he calculated the, uh, the odds based upon how many people were alive at certain times in history uh, and specifically where the prophecies were said to, uh, were going to occur, for example, Bethlehem or Jerusalem, Israel, things like that. And he just picked eight of these prophecies and calculated the odds of anyone fulfilling all eight of those. And the odds that, that Peter Stoner came up with were 1 in 10 to the 47th power. Anybody know how big of a number that is? It's pretty big. It's 10 with 47 zeros after it. It's some kind of gazillion something. The odds are extraordinary that eight of these prophecies would have been fulfilled, and yet Jesus fulfilled all 300. So there's a lot of prophetic evidence that Jesus was going to come and that he would come at a very precise time. I've talked about this before, but I want to go through it again. In Daniel's prophecy, Daniel gives an amazing timeline related to the first advent of the Christ. It says in verse 20, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel... The man I had seen in the earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you begin to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city. Now literally there in the Hebrew, the word is shabuam. 70 shabuam are, are decreed. 77s. So the context determines what the seven is. Know and understand this, verse 25. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So, the order to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given in March of the year 445 B.C. by Artaxerxes, the Persian ruler. He said it was all right for the Jews to go and to restore and to rebuild their temple and ultimately their city. So the Jews began to do that. Now, in the Jewish calendar, there is not 365 and a quarter days. In the Jewish calendar, it's a lunar calendar. And so there are 360 days in the, the Jewish calendar. So if you calculate 360 days, multiply that by 69 seven-year periods. That's 483 years. So you take 483, multiply it times 360, you come up with 173,880 days. If you take 173,880 days and begin from the order to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and you calculate it out, you end up on Passover 32 AD, which is when 
the anointed one, after the 62 sevens and seven sevens, will be put to death and have nothing. So there was a very specific point in time that God intended for Jesus to come. In the fullness of time, Jesus came. And in the fullness of time, Jesus died. So this, this scripture here where it says in Galatians 4 that the fullness, when the fullness of time had come, it truly is, pardon the pun, pregnant with meaning. I mean, it is powerful because God had it all laid out. Specifically, precisely, in an orderly fashion. And so this Christmas season, as we begin to understand that we are celebrating the birth, not just of a babe in a manger, we'll, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, but the birth of the Messiah, God's own Son, that was specifically ordained and planned by God in ages past, for me, that's a comforting thought. It's a powerful notion to think that God is in such control of history and has such precise determination of what is going to occur that I can trust my life to him. Sometimes it seems like it's way out of control. Other times I feel like, hey, I'm on top of the world. But you know what? When I'm on top of the world, really, you know, I'm, I'm probably not as on top of it as I think. I saw this great shirt at Treads and Threads yesterday. It said, confidence is the feeling you have before you fully appreciate the situation. I thought that, that describes me a lot of times. But God is in charge. He is in control. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. We're going to be looking at those other phrases in the next few weeks. But what I want you to understand this morning, what I want you to take a hold of this morning, this Christmas season, is that God has a plan for your life. I don't know what that plan is, but God does. Whatever that plan is, this is also something that I know. It's a plan for good, and it's a plan for a future. Jeremiah 29.10, God promised to the nation of Israel that he had a very specific purpose for them. They were in exile. They were headed into exile. They would be there for 70 years, but God was promising to them, I have a plan for you. I am in control. In 70 years, you'll be back in the land, rebuilding. And what I want to say to each one of you this morning, this Christmas season, is hold on to the reality that God has a plan for your life. Sometimes Christmas can be very difficult for people. It's a time of great joy for many, but for others, it's a time of difficulty for a variety of reasons. But just know that God loves you and He has a very good plan for you. Dear Father, we thank You for your word that gives us such comfort and such assurance. We know from your word that you are omnipotent, all-powerful, that you are omniscient, all-knowing, that you're omnipresent everywhere we go, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And this morning, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would comfort any who need comforting. For those who are rejoicing 
here today, Lord, fill them with the fullness of joy. And for this body, Lord, I pray that this Christmas season would be one of great awakening into the purpose and plan you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand and we will sing a hymn, Christmas hymn. Amen. Let's join around and we will gather for prayer and praise.
some of the individuals from our congregation step up to uh, potentially serve on the uh, executive committee. And so next week we'll have our uh, annual meeting. So following church, there'll be a short meeting where we'll uh, ratify the 2015 budget and we'll sit and vote uh, on our next uh, executive committee members. And so just be on the lookout for the pastor e-news or in a printout at the office of just a little short bio of uh, who the candidates are so you can get to know them before the election. So if you're one of those candidates, this is news to you. So we'll be reaching out to you to provide a bio. <laughs> place into the world, Lord, as lights and 